This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. David Brooks, in your new book, The Second Mountain, uh, back in the back in acknowledgments, you had this sentence. Gina Centralo wondered if I was going all woo-woo about eight years ago, but I hope she is satisfied with the Brooks woo-woo phase. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was writing about um, sociology most of my books. My books have never been about politics, even though my column is mostly about politics. Most of my... Um, Books are early on were about sociology. There was a book called Bobos in Paradise about the upper middle class. And recently they've gone off into emotion. There was a book called The Social Animal. And now they've gone more into culture and morality. So The Road to Character was a book. And then uh, The Second Mountain is really a deep, deeper and deeper into spirituality and, and, and the inner life. So what got you out of the woo-woo stage? <laughs> well, you know, we, we writers um, work on our, in, in our, on our stuff in public. Even if we pretend we're writing about something else, we're really writing about what we're going through at that moment. And so I was just going through a moment where, you know, how can I be a better person? Uh, and who are the people who are reading, leading beautiful lives, and how can I learn to emulate them? It was literally that process of trying to be less shallow. Other than the obvious, uh, and we'll talk about the second mountain, what, if, what will people get if they read this book? Well, I hope they get a formula for, um, A, rebelling against a culture of individualism, a culture that probably overemphasizes the self and overemphasizes worldly achievement. Uh, and they'll get a vocabulary, I hope, to how to lead a joyous life. In the beginning, I made it make a distinction between happiness and joy. And happiness is what happens when you achieve a goal or the self expands. You win the Super Bowl, you get a promotion when life is going your way. But joy is when the self disappears. When you're out in nature and you lose yourself in the woods, when a mother and a daughter are just enraptured by each other's love, uh, by certain spiritual peak experiences, and you, the self just disappears or you connect with something outside the self and there's a merger between the two. And my argument in the book is happiness is good. I like happiness, but joy is better. And if you orient yourself toward a life of joy, a life of giving until you disappear, uh, you'll have a better life. As you know, there's religion in this book. And this one line I want you to explain. The Jews, by and large, didn't know how to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've, I talk in there about um, my exploration of the Christian faith. And when I started exploring and asking people about that, every Christian on earth started sending me books. This was like six years ago. I got like 500 books, uh, and um, only 100 of which were Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. But when I would talk to my Jewish friends, Judaism, you're born Jewish. And pretty much you stay Jewish. There's, there's not a lot of, even, there's no evangelizing outside, uh, and there's not much entry and exit that you are for life. And I still feel that very tribally and very culturally. But uh, when I would talk to, me, talk to them about how transfixed I was by St. Augustine or Dorothy Day, a lot of my Jewish friends had trouble just like, what, what's going on here? They didn't have a language, I would say, or at least for me, anyway. Later on in that, in that area, you say, 
Is it fair to ask, did I convert? Did I leave Judaism and become a Christian? Yeah, and it Tell us, what is it? Yeah, it doesn't feel that way to me. Uh, I was raised in a Jewish home, Jewish uh, family. Uh, yeah, both my parents. But I went to Christian schools, uh, and I went to a Christian camp, which was the core of my childhood. And so even as a young kid, I was singing hymns and saying the Lord's Prayer uh, and singing the choir and all that kind of stuff, and I was around these two cultures. And it wasn't a problem because I didn't really believe in God anyway, so it didn't really matter. Uh, they were just two cultures. But later in life, um, I just came to faith, uh, and uh, so then they both seemed real to me. It, it didn't feel like I was moving or shifting ground. These two stories were in my head, and instead of seeing like fictional stories, the Exodus story becomes true as you live into it, and it becomes the phrase I use is the ground of being. It's the ground of our being, and so I just felt I was deepening into place, suddenly taking God's presence seriously. So what were, when did all this turn, or when did you get interested in Christianity? And as you're answering that, why do so many people read C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity? Let me take the second first. I always tell students to read C.S. Lewis and George Eliot, I mean George Orwell, because their prose is so clear, and yet they're doing a lot of literary things with it that, that so many metaphors are wrapped into their prose. And the other thing that's really good about them is they both wrote for radio. And so they wrote with the clarity that you could hear with the ear. You didn't have to read it. And so just their perfect prose style list if you want to get clarity. And my uh, life, um, my religious life, has been the most boring and incremental thing that could ever happen. There's never been like a blinding, shining, you know, road to Damascus experience. It started with a fascination when I was probably six and, and sitting there in Grace Church School in the chapel uh, and going to Hebrew school and then getting bar mitzvahed. And then just very gradually a series of um, incremental deepenings. And uh, it, the, I describe it in the book as like you're in a train and uh, everyone you're sitting across from people and you're talking. And suddenly you look out the window and you realize it seems like nothing's changed, but you've um, traveled a long way. There's a lot of ground behind you. And you've crossed a border and suddenly you think, well, I'm not an atheist. Uh, I'm not even an agnostic. Uh, I do believe that the world was created by a being. And part of it, I think, was just journalism. You know, when you do journalism, I don't want to do the stories I do or the columns I do about uh, a, just a bag of genetic material. I've really come to believe that each human being has a soul. Each, each human being has a piece of themselves which is, has no size, weight, or color. But it gives them infinite dignity. And it's a yearning for goodness. And that slavery is wrong because it's an assault on a, another human soul. Rape isn't just an attack on a bunch of physical molecules. It's an insult to a, another human being's soul. And so once you start getting that sensation, people have infinite souls in themselves, then it's a short leap, I think, to the sensation that we're all joined by something uh, in some transcendent realm. And it's just weirder than we can imagine. Uh, you know, the, the uh, cosmologists sometimes have a theory that there are infinite number of universes, and in one of those universes, the two of us are talking somewhere else, and that's a very weird theory. The idea of a creator is even weirder than that. And I stay humble in the face of that mystery and that weirdness. Fifteen years plus ago, when Gail Collins talked to you about coming to the New York Times, what did she think she was getting then? And what is, I know she doesn't, no longer runs the op-ed page, right. but what is she, what do, you, what do you think you're giving them now? Yeah, well, I think um, she was getting a more conservative voice. Um, and 
uh, and so they wanted a diversity, like now, they wanted a diversity of voices, and um, so I was one. I was a, then a younger writer and then a more conservative writer than I am today. I'm, I don't think I've changed. My heroes are still the same. My heroes politically are Edmund Burke and Alexander Hamilton, a basic conservatism that change should be incremental and a basic belief in the immigrant dream that we should make a society where poor boys and girls can rise and succeed. Uh, and that hasn't changed. The problem is conservatism has changed a lot around me. And I'd say with the advent of Donald Trump, it's become unrecognizable to what it was when Bill Buckley was my mentor. And so I've become less doctrinaire Republican and uh, somewhat of a never-Trumper, definitely a never-Trumper. Uh, and, um, and the other thing that I've tried to do is my theory is our culture and our public conversation is over-politicized and under-moralized. That is to say, we talk a little too much about politics and maybe not enough about um, uh, how we do relationships, how we feel gratitude, how we do forgiveness, the things that I think really matter in life, and which I think a lot of us, including myself, are morally inarticulate about. When we first met you years ago, um, and you were with the Weekly Standard, and I want to run just a little bit of an interview we had uh, 2015, and then come back and ask you about the Weekly Standard and writing. Okay. Probably the happiest professional period of my life was going to work at the Weekly Standard, where I had a group of my friends and we were part of a common project. And I do think you change history in groups, uh, not so much as individuals. So magazines are to be celebrated for that. And in December 15th of 2018, uh, three years after that, you wrote the following, and under the headline, Who Killed the Weekly Standard in the New York Times? I've only been around Phil Anschutz a few times. My impressions on those occasions was that he was a run-of-the-mill, arrogant billionaire. He was used to people courting him, and he addressed them condescendingly from the lofty height of his own wealth. Why did you start off? That's I was not angry. like you. Yeah, I, I was angry. Uh, maybe I would take some of that back. I just, that's too personal. Why were you angry? Because the magazine that I think that I had helped found with a lot of my best friends, Andy Ferguson and Bill Crystal and Fred Barnes and uh, so many good friends, John Podoritz, I thought was a very important piece of the American conversation. It was uh, a uh, literary and, I think, intelligent conservatism. And it was a conservatism that was not party line. And it was a conservatism that allowed for a lot of internal debate. We were known as a magazine that supported the Iraq War with Crystal and Bob Kagan and others and Max Boot, but I would say most of the staff actually didn't. And so there was a lot of differences, and it was also just a fun place to work. And so I thought it was a very important and could still be the most needed. It, right now, it could be its most needed time when, in the era of Trump, so much of conservatism has to be re-argued. And in some ways, at the end, it was near its peak. Uh, Adam Kuyper ran the back of the book section, the literary section. He did a phenomenal job. And so it's a loss for culture and for politics when a voice like that is stilled. And I thought the way it was done, and other people have written much more about this than I know, but was especially um, cruel and philistine. You write, uh, they didn't merely close it because it was losing money. They seemed to have murdered it out of greed and vengeance. Yeah, I, I mean, I asked around while doing the reporting, um, why was it closed and why, why wasn't they allowed to be sold? because you could have found somebody to buy it. And I think they wanted to harvest the list for another thing they were starting. Um, uh, and so they, they could have let it just say, okay, we don't want to own the magazine, that's fine. 
but then let somebody else keep it alive. And I think that was not done. What's the value of a column or what's the value of a magazine like that? And how many people care about words? Yeah, well, I, yeah, a lot of people care about words. They're a common heritage. And I think the, the, the job of a columnist, I used to think, oh, a columnist, I'll, I'll write a column say, for certain immigration reform. And the president will call me up and say, you know, I really used to oppose this, uh, this policy, but now I, now I support it. Um, and that'll never happen. You don't do that. But what you try to do is you don't tell people what to think. You try to provide a context in which they can think. So with a column, you're just trying to provoke. And a column is not, it's not influential for the policymakers. It's just part of our common conversation. Uh, and so you're just trying to provoke a thought. And maybe they like it, maybe they don't, but at least they're provoked into thinking. Yeah, in your book, you have a chapter called Mastery. Yeah. What's it, what is it about? Well, I, I go walk the reader through. I, my theory is that our, our life uh, is made up of four, most of us, four big commitments to a family, to a vocation, to a philosophy or faith, and then to a community. And the fulfillment of our life is, depends on how well we choose those commitments and then how, execute on them. So mastery comes in the vocation section, choosing your career, what you're called to do in life. And mastery is getting really good at it. Uh, and so um, uh, I've now forgotten the question. What the Mastery, what the what, chapter yeah, was the, about. So the chapter is, once you've chosen your vocation, how, how do you just get good at what you're doing? Yeah. You've got some video. It, it goes back quite a bit to the 50s. You write about this in the book, and it's out of context. People will say, what in the world is this doing here? But let's watch a man named Ed Sullivan, who hasn't been around for years. We've got a great all-star show going along with him, but right now, singing a medley of some of the songs that you enjoy to the extent of boosting them over the million mark, here is Elvis. Over and over again, in all of the correspondence and all of the comments through the country, the unanimous opinion of all who saw you with your four thoroughly nice youngsters. Oh, oh thank you. Oh, and I, I think that is the, actually the basis of your tremendous popularity. Okay, break it all down. Ed Sullivan, do we have anybody like him today, and what was he back yeah. then? Ed Sullivan, there were certain shows that the huge majority of Americans watch. It's impossible to imagine. Imagine one show getting the majority, but there was Milton Berle and the Honeymooners and Ed Sullivan. Ed Sullivan hosted a, a, um, a variety show back in the 50s. Uh, and it's, I think it relates to my book because of a guy I admire a great deal, um, Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce Springsteen was seven, and he was living in Freehold, New Jersey. And he, like the rest of America, was sitting around watching the Ed Sullivan show on whatever night it was, and he saw that moment. He saw Elvis Presley. And it was like um, he saw out of a world of gray, suddenly, as he's put it in his book, Born to Run, uh, fun. Fun appeared. And you see what a shift, how radical Elvis Presley would have looked. You got those guys behind him in their suits and ties, and then Presley's not dressed like them. He doesn't dance like them. He doesn't move like that. He doesn't sing. He doesn't, his whole affect is completely different. So that was a cultural revolution. And so Pringsteen at that moment said, that's what I want to be. And in the book, I have a concept called Annunciation Moments that happen, things that happen early in life that prefigure all the rest. 
And so for Einstein, when he was four, his dad gave him a compass, and he saw the magnetic forces. And he thought, wow, there are invisible forces in the universe. I want to study those. When he was four, E.O. Wilson, I talk about in the book, a scientist, when he was seven, he saw his first jellyfish uh, and saw the, the wonders of the ocean and became a naturalist at that moment. And I'm a lesser figure than them, but um, at seven, I read a book called Paddington the Bear and said I want to become a writer. And so for Springsteen, it was that moment. And so he begged his mom to go out and rent a guitar. He tried for seven days, and it was too hard. <laughs> he was seven. But then a few years later, he was watching the Ed Sullivan Show again, and the Beatles came on. And he went downtown and saw a record album, I think it was called Meet the Beatles. And he picked up the guitar again, and the rest is history. He had, he, um, he had no plan B, and so he's been playing that guitar ever since. It's been my experience. You're either an Elvis fan or a Beatles fan, but not both. Yeah. I'm sure that's an overstatement. <laughs> Did you watch them? Were you old enough to I watch them? I was probably they... a little too young. I remember as a kid um, being aware of the Beatles. I was too young to really see Elvis in his prime, and, but I was aware of Yellow Submarine when I was little. Uh, and I, I think in retrospect, I'm a little more of a Rolling Stones than the Elvis. So what impact did somebody like Ed Solomon or the Beatles or Elvis have on this country? Well, they, they really did define a culture, and they gave us a cohesive culture. And Elvis was important in part also relating to the book. The culture you see of Ed Sullivan is the culture of the 1950s. And it was a very collective institutional culture. They do big things like win World War II, fight the Depression. And they needed to fight. um, They needed a culture that says we're all in this together. And so you didn't want to stick out too much. They sort of dressed the same. Uh, And you didn't want to. There was a culture of self-effacement. I'm no better than anybody, but nobody's better than me. And people found that. It was a good community. If you were in those days, if you were in Chicago, you didn't say, I'm from Chicago. You said, I'm from 59th and Pulaski, because the neighborhoods were super tight. And so there's a lot we admire about that culture, the great communities. But it was too conformist and too boring. The food was really boring. It was also racist, sexist, anti-Semitic. And so along comes Elvis Presley, and he says, I'm breaking out of all this. And the Beatles were part of this. We're breaking out of this. And we're going to create a different culture that's about, I'm free to be myself. And so it was much more individualistic, much more open. It was cool to be young and not old, to be a rebel, not institutionalist, um, to be expressive, not modest. And the whole culture sort of shifted from Elvis Presley to Woodstock. And we needed to go through that change. It was good for America. But we've had 60 years of hyper-individualism ever since. Uh, And I'd say we sort of ran out the string. And now we're at a point where all that individualism has torn us apart as a society and the bonds between us have grown weaker and our narcissism about ourselves has grown stronger. But you say in the book that you actually change your mind about this. About? Individualism to being more interested in community and that's just a few years later. What happened during that period to to, uh, change your mind? Well, I think, you know, history solves problems of of that moment. Uh, And so I can't remember I quote her in the book, a social theorist who says history moves according to a a ratchet, hatchet, pivot, ratchet. So culture has a problem. We've got to win World War II. Let's have a collective culture. And so they ratchet up. They solve it. And it works for a while, but then it just stops working. And you've got to hatchet it up. You've got to chop it up. And then because people are ingenious, they pivot over and find something else. So suddenly the problem is society's too conformist. We pivot over with Elvis. He gives us something new, and we live more in his way. And now we're at a point where we've, we're chopping up the hyper-individualism, 
of 60 years, and some people are reverting to tribe as their attempt to find kind of community, and I think that's a poisonous direction to go to. Tribalism seems like community, it bonds people together, but it bonds them over mutual hatred, not on mutual affection. It's always us then. Move back to the title of this this, uh, chapter, Mastery. Yeah. What more do you want to say about mastery? Well, I mean, mastery comes about in a lot of ways. I think the first thing it comes about, people sometimes think, I should find what my skills are, uh, and I should just go and do whatever my skills tell me to do. I'm an artist or whatever. I think that's the wrong question. I think you should go to where your desires are, that uh, skills are plentiful, but motivation is really scarce. And so what the question becomes, what are you so fanatical about? You'll basically devote your whole life to that thing. And because I think the people who gets better, the research we now know, even in people like Mozart, is that it's not because they were natural geniuses. They just worked from a very early age phenomenally hard for a very long time. And so Springsteen worked on that guitar and worked on the music his whole life. Um, and he did things to remain true to what started him. One of the things I admire most about uh, his life choices is that when he was, um, uh, after his third album, which was the big superstar blow-up album called Born to Run, he could have made an even bigger album with national sound and gone global and become a global celebrity. Instead, he went back to his hometown and wrote a very spare very particular album called Darkness on the Edge of Town about his own place. So instead of going big, he went back to his roots, the thing that really motivated him. And I have in the book the concept of a daemon, which I did not invent, um, the idea that at the core of each of us, there is some question that nags at us, and there's some desire that drives us. Um, And it can be aesthetic. I quote a woman that I think Annie Dillard interviewed, who's a painter, and she's asked, why are you a painter? And she just said, I love the smell of paint. Uh, And... um, so there's a guy named Tom Boyce who has a book he's called The Orchid and the Dandelion. And it's about some kids are orchid children who, th- who need good soil to thrive in. And if they don't get it, they're, they're in trouble. Some kids are dandelion children. You can plant them anywhere. Well, he is a dandelion kid. But his sister, who was very brilliant and very beautiful, was an orchid. And she achieved much, a lot, but then depression and suicide took her. And so the comparison between the two in his life has been the animating principle. Uh, and so, to me, it's just working on that craft over and over again and having the desire just to wake up and do the same thing over and over again. Uh, this all comes from your chapter, The Mastery. Uh, we're going to show some video, and there are three clips. Uh, one of them is a gentleman named Forrest McDonald. Unfortunately, he's deceased, but this is from 1994. The next one is Shelby Foote. He's deceased. This is from 2001. And uh, Stacy Schiff is not. She's very much alive, and that's 2011. And the purpose of showing this over the years, I've asked questions here about how people write, where they write, when they write, and it seems to have gotten most people's attention that, that uh, like this kind of stuff. Let's watch this, and I want to then ask you about your chapter on this. Now, if we could see you in your environment mm-hmm. writing this book, what would we see? <laughs> You see me writing in the nude most of the time. Uh, in the nude? Yeah. No, we live in total isolation out in the country. They don't even read the electric meter because the electric man can't find it. We have to read our own meter. Right? We've got wonderful isolation. And, you know, it's warm most of the year in Alabama. And why wear clothes? I mean, they're just a bother. You, you said that you write between five and 600 words a day. Right. With a dip pen on paper. How many words would you write? How many words can you write each time and demonstrate just for a minute there how that would work? It's uh, 
The reason I like writing with a dip pen is it makes me take my time. If I want to correct something, I do this instead of taking a typewriter and reversing the drum or having a word processor where I push a key. I don't want anything mechanical between me and the page. What do you write on? Oh, you ask the embarrassing question. I write with a pencil on a legal pad for the first draft um, and by hand. Pencil, pen, a not a Mechanical pen. pencil. When I write something on the computer, I'm... First of all, it's longer always. I don't know if everyone notices that. And it's softer somehow. It doesn't, it doesn't have the terseness it could have. Um, so the, the, pencil slows me, the pencil on the paper slows me down. Once I have a first draft, then I will enter it into the computer, which is already an act of editing, and then edit subsequent drafts from there. You write about some of this kind of stuff. Yeah, first of, uh, the first story, uh, Forrest McDonald, uh, it reminded me of that I mentioned in the book, um, Cheever, John Cheever. Uh, he he uh, would get up in his apartment, put on a suit and tie, take an elevator to the floor in the basement of his building where he had an office, take off the suit and tie and write in his boxers. And then at 12.30, he'd put back on the suit and tie and ride the elevator up to have, get, make himself lunch. Not quite nude, but getting there. Did he talk about that? He, somewhere I f- came across that story, and it, it just impressed me. I think somebody else, um, I forget who it was. Was it Toni Morrison? Had, she had a hotel room where she had a, a Bible, a typewriter, and a bottle of brandy. So I, I like that story, too. My writing, um, I'm not at a computer or with a pen, or at least not at a table. Uh, what I do is I have random thoughts that come to me out of order, and I write them on little pieces of paper, often post-it notes or just slips of paper of notebook paper. And then I put them into a big pile. And then I take the big pile and for, say, a column, which is 850 words, I may have um, 200 pages of research material that I've marked up. Uh, and I lay it out on the floor of my living room or office uh, on the carpet there. And there's a bunch of piles. And each pile is going to be a paragraph of my column or of the book. So for me, the writing process is not typing in a keyboard or writing on a pad. It's crawling around the floor, organizing my piles. And I tell my students, your paper should be 80% done by the time you start putting it into the keyboard because writing is about traffic management and structure. And so you have to get the structure right. Uh, And so for me, the piles are the structure. And I don't have clarity about what it is until I physically, geographically see it laid out on the floor there. And I pick up a pile, I write the paragraph, I throw out the paper, I pick up the next pile, write the paragraph, then throw it out. And if it's not flowing, I don't try to fix it. I, I just start over with a new structure. If it just doesn't feel like it's flowing, it's a structural problem that's showing up unconsciously. How about a book? When you write the book, how do you do that? Same way? It's the same way, except for there are thousands of piles. And so you, they get into smaller, uh, ever smaller piles. And so I'll have just drawers and drawers of notebooks, and then I lay them out, and I'll have this chapter, that chapter, that chapter, and then even when even each sentence has a piece of paper. So I'll pick up the paragraph and then lay out the sentences and then just copy them down onto the computer. Here's your column uh, that you wrote about your own book. (laughs) And it was April 15th, 2019 in the New York Times, and the headline is Five Lies Our Culture Tells. Uh, By the way, do you write those headlines? The culture roots of our political problems, and you say, uh, we've created a culture based on lies. Explain. Yeah. I, you know, I, I wrote The Road to Character four years ago thinking our culture was sort of okay and that it had some problems, but most of the work to be a person of character was internal. Uh, now I think our culture, it's been revealed by the events of the last few years, our culture has bigger problems than I understood. 
And I think a lot of them are, as I've said before, the culture of individualism, that life is an individual journey. Uh, and I quote this book, Oh, the Places You'll Go, the Dr. Seuss book that people give to students on graduation day. And that depicts life as just a solitary journey without marriage, friendship, relationships. It's just a, a sole person going into life. And that's not how life is or not how life should be. Uh, but the second thing is the meritocracy, that we're so swept up into this system that you are what you accomplish. And there's a view that, which we deny it, but our society points to it, which is that people who've earned more and make more are somehow worth more than other people. And that has created such poison in our society. And then there's the, the lie we tell our students that success will make you feel fulfilled uh, and that you really should point your whole life to career success. And, you know, we, we start, take them at 16, at least the most privileged ones, and we ship them into this college admissions process that tells them that success and status are going to be at the center of their lives. And I, I now see the effects of all that shaping, just creating this culture of atomization, of fragmentation, and anger. We've lost the ability to treat ourselves well. So what triggered this? Well, I think it, it, it grew up gradually out of, I think, the culture of individualism, and then somehow the, the meritocracy just got purified. The meritocracy was created. It was, um, it was a rebellion against, it was done at Harvard, by uh, President Conant, and he said, you know, we've got a bunch of, it was around 1950, we got to fight the Soviets. You look at Harvard, and we're just the sons of the same blue-blood Protestant families that have been going to Harvard for the last 200 or 300 years. We've got to change this. And he was absolutely right. And so the test, the SAT, was part of the tool they were going to use so it wouldn't just be inherited sons of rich men. And so they were going to do it on the basis of merit, on the basis of the SAT and in grades, and so from 1950, I think you could, I think if you could, your dad went to Harvard, your chances of getting in were like 90%. And the median SAT score was like five something. And by 10 years, that was all changed. And the median SAT had ridden to the high 600s. And that was the right thing to do. It made society a lot more fair. But somehow the competitive pressure of the meritocracy combined with the natural materialism of America and the natural individualism that have always been part of America have, we've taken good ideas and we've taken them a little too far. And if you wanted to sum up the whole book in one sentence, it's we've got the culture of the meritocracy, of individualism, which is true, but you've got to have a moral and value system that's different. So you're not completely sucked up by these values. So you have a better moral system. And the book is an attempt to survey philosophers and other people and say, here's a, a moral system to balance capitalism, not to replace it, just so we're not morally corrupted by capitalism. By now, there are people that have been watching this interview and are saying... All right, what is that on his lapel? <laughs> so this is, uh, so I talk about this in the book, but I, not only in the book. Uh, I think culture changes when a small group of people find a better way to live and the rest of us copy it. Elvis was one of those small people. A lot of people copied him. We've got a crisis of social isolation on this country. And uh, I created something uh, at the Aspen Institute called Weave, the Social Fabric Project, and it was based on the theory that the problem of isolation and fragmentation and division is being solved on the local level by people we call weavers. And some of them have started organizations. Some of them, they just behave as neighbors. Like they don't think, you know, some of them really, like there's a woman named Sarah Heminger in Baltimore who created an organization called Thread, which takes 450 underperforming students in the Baltimore schools and surrounds them with volunteers and creates this social fabric around them. It's a beautiful program. And so that's like a formal organization. 
But let me stop you there because you mentioned Baltimore, and we don't need to get into this a lot. But the mayor of Baltimore, and there have been a couple of mayors of Baltimore, yeah. and in both cases, the women uh, that have. What's the word you want to use to describe what they've done? This particular one, it's there now, uh, took a leave of absence because she was a part of, I, I don't want to make any accusations that I can't uh, define, but she basically made a tremendous amount of money off of book sales that really never happened, or right. you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. How can a kid grow up in that environment and say, well, I think change is not going to come from our politicians. Change is going to come from the bottom up. But 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 they still are out there, and those are the people we see. Yeah, I mean, the politics matters, and we should have honest politicians. But I do think change is going to come when we first have a shift in culture, but then we have a shift in community. And so all of us live a little more for our neighbors. So we, we adopt slightly different habits. You don't have to radically change your life and go off and, and be a kid or a teacher in a, uh, an urban school or whatever. But if everybody in society invited their neighbors over for dinner occasionally, uh, if everybody in society checked in on old people during a heat wave, if you had a slight shift in, in our manners and morals so that we were all joined an organization, joined a club that put us in contact to people completely unlike ourselves at least once a month, all those millions of changes, I think, would have an effect on the social fabric. And Weave is an attempt to encourage people to embrace a slightly different lifestyle and maybe join an organization, but sometimes it's just informal. Most care in society is informal. Uh, we ran into, or I have a friend who ran into a lady in Florida who was uh, helping kids across the street after school, after elementary school, and he said, do you have any time to volunteer? And she said, no, I, I have no time. And he said, well, are you getting paid for this? And she says, no. And then he, what are you doing after this? Well, I'm going to hospital. I bring food to the ill. And he said, that's not volunteering? She said, no, that's just neighboring. That's just what you do. And so most of the care in our society is just people who do that, who, who just neighbor. Uh, and we've sort of lost the art of neighboring. And so we take the weavers, who are great at it, they're just great at relationship, and we take their values and we try to lift them up and illuminate them and just say... Where did the term weaver come from? Uh, we just needed a name for our organization, so we thought of it. And uh, the term is important um, because in 1960, nobody called themselves a feminist. But by 1975, millions of people said, hey, I'm a feminist. And it had great power to name something. And to me, I look at all the millions of weavers around the country, and they're a movement that doesn't know it's a movement. And we, we've had an environmental movement to solve environmental problems. We've had the feminist movement to solve gender inequality, civil rights movement. We have a big community problem. But we don't have a community movement. And so we're trying to help rally that sort of thing. You, you've mentioned Aspen more than once. Uh, and you talk about Aspen in the book. I've got some video that we, you also talk about Chautauqua. Yeah. And I want to roll this and just ask you, though, how many people really have an opportunity to go to this kind of an environment? I mean, it's, this is not, this is Chautauqua is in New York. Uh, how do you get access to that? It costs lots of money. It's the same thing with Aspen. Yeah. I mean, the prices in Aspen are just astronomical yeah. and very few people can enjoy that uh so when you talk about these places you know enormous number of people in the united states could never participate in this, some of this kind of thing yes aspen's very expensive the aspen ideas festival is very expensive but it's important to remember that aspen itself is 40 programs and policies that reach all across america and really all across the world so aspen ideas festival has become very famous and what aspen is known for but most of you know i don't know 95 percent of the aspen institute is out in america 
Uh, there's a woman named Janet Topolsky who runs our rural program. And every time I, I was in Nebraska, wherever you go, they know Janet Topolsky across rural America. So most of what Aspen does is not the Aspen Ideas Festival. That is, that's some, some of that is just financial. That's where our donor base is. And so that is, Chautauqua is less affluent. It tends to be middle class, upper middle class people who rent little cottages there. Um, and so those two places are probably more above average wealth. And so what you have to do, and one of the things we've done in Weave, is to go where the problems are and go where the people are. And over the last, well, first I spent a year in 2016 trying to understand why I got the Trump election so wrong. And then I've spent the last year and a half with the Weavers, you know, in Wilkesboro, North Carolina, in Nebraska, in New Orleans, um, you know, all across America, really, um, where where normal America lives in, in uh, you know, Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, and so that has been actually a very great experience because while politics has gotten quite ugly, to be among the weavers in Youngstown, a guy, I met a guy, a really good guy who really loves Youngstown. And he started his activism by just standing in the town square with a sign that said, defend Youngstown. And um, I've met some of the most amazing people. They're not motivated by money or status and certainly not celebrity. They're motivated by a desire to live in right relationship with each other and a desire to do good. And life is really hard for them. They take on a lot of heavy burdens. They don't have a lot of money, but they lead very inspiring lives. Um, I have, there's so many stories. One woman I met in New Orleans, uh, Lisa Fitzpatrick is her name. She was in the healthcare, healthcare executive. She was driving and she saw two scared young boys, 10 and 11, and they held up a gun and then they shot her in the face. And she recovered. And she decided, you know, I wasn't the only victim here. They were victims of something. They didn't start. And so she started doing work uh, with um, gang members. Uh, and then she created, a, just moved into a neighborhood, and young kids started knocking on her door who really needed community, and she let them in. And one day she found herself, I guess in her 50s, surrounded by about 35 young kids, teenagers, who were just hanging around her house playing with Lego. And she said to him, why do you hang around a middle-aged lady like me? And she said, because you open the door. And so many people are hungry for community. And you know, the people who really can create it, they get a lot done. Here's some video from February the 21st of this year. Um, it's only 30 seconds. You'll recognize the individual. And this is another part of your book. Desperate as I am for the church to, be, to do what the church was founded to do and be, in my life and in the life of a society I'm concerned about, the fragrance of the church doesn't only need to be confined to hallowed halls. In fact, what I've discovered is that in our time, in this democracy, there's a whole bevy of organizations, large and small, institutions, old and new, influencers, famous and not at all famous, that share a common language of personalism and, and relationality, hospitality and recognition of the human soul. Who is that woman? That is the woman I love. That's my wife. <laughs> Her name is Ann, uh, Ann Snyder, formerly now Ann Brooks. Uh, we were married about um, two years ago, a little less than two years ago. Uh, and she's a writer, um, and she has um, just had a book. She, she's been a, she's a writer, too, and on some similar subjects, but differently. I tend to write about individual character. She wrote a book called The Fabric of Character, which is about organizations that turn around lives. And so she went out to something called the Other Side Academy, which is a moving company in Salt Lake City that takes men and women out of prison and really does moral reformation. So they come out two years later uh, just totally transformed. It's humbling to, to be around these people. They're so good. And the funny thing about them is they are... Um, 
some of them were former burglars. So they're, they're, they're good at getting stuff out of buildings. And their slogan is, we used to take things uh, out the window, now we take it out the door. And so she does that work and um, happily married. Um, in your book, you say, you, you tell us about your divorce. Uh, actually, we talked about it the last time you were here. But you say that you and your ex-wife have an agreement not to talk about your divorce. Mm-hmm. But then you go on and tell us everything about your new wife and how you met her. She was your researcher. She's 23 years younger than you are. Uh, and then the love story and all that. Why did you decide to do that? Yeah. And you not tell I mean, you get a sense that the divorce was a real blow to you. Right. Uh, but you won't talk about that, but you'll talk about the... Yeah, the, I don't uh, feel I tell our love story. I, I, tell our, um, uh, I tell a little my journey of faith. And as you probably can tell from that clip, uh, Anne is Christian. Uh, and at a crucial moment, for it was really a, only a two-month window in August or September of 2013, we were working on this book, The Road to Character, and she was doing a chapter on Dorothy Day. Uh, and I would write her these emails trying to understand... What, what Dorothy Day believed, what is all this stuff? And she would write me long emails back. Um, and that sort of explained, began an exploration of faith. Then she got a job in Houston writing about the immigrant experience and moved away. And, but that was, like, pivotal. And then I, my journey of faith continued uh, for the ensuing three, four, five, six years now. You, you actually so, say in the book, though, that if you didn't talk about all this, people would be cynical and that story would be told. How, how much of a fear did you have that that uh, you, you, met, you actually yeah. married a woman considerably younger? Right. Than it was a fear, um, and it's not a good situation. I, I worry very much about predeceasing her. Uh, and so we had, uh, it, you know, this, we went through a lot of discernment, especially Anne did. Uh, and eventually it just became, frankly, the love came too powerful to deny. It couldn't, we couldn't go through life Eventually, I mean, this happened more in 2017, uh, 2016, um, but um, you couldn't go through life with that person out there and not be with that person. It would ruin every other relationship. So um, eventually what had seemed impossible, first, um, we didn't even think about it. You know, you don't think about it when you're just working together and uh, being friends. But eventually what seemed impossible and uh, the age gap especially, it just seemed unavoidable. (laughs) Uh, okay, this is another small item. Your first wife's name was Jane. She was a Christian. She converted to Judaism. Yeah, or, I wouldn't say she was Christian. Say, okay, but she changed her name to Sarah. And so now you, uh, as a Jewish man, you have fallen in love and married a woman who's a Christian. So it's just the opposite of all this. Does any of this stuff bother you? Life has surprises, and life doesn't go in straight lines. Uh, unexpected. I call the chapter on religion the most unexpected turn of events, and believe me, it was a most unexpected turn of events. Um, you mention, and you tell us, you're going to mention a lot of different people and quote a lot of different people yeah. in this book. Let's start with Dorothy Day. Who was she, and why did why did that get your attention? Yeah, she led a remarkable life. She was a writer. Uh, she grew up in um, San Francisco and then Chicago, and then she came to New York thinking she'd be a radical socialist writer. And on the birth of her child, she she was flooded with this sense of love and joy. And she said, I need somebody to thank for this. And so she became a Catholic on the spot. Uh, and she founded something called the Catholic Worker Movement. She founded a paper uh, called Catholic Worker. Then she founded homeless shelters. Then she founded uh, agrarian communes. Uh, and then a whole series of organizations, really not only to help the poor and the homeless, but to live amongst them. And she paid herself no salary, 
she embraced a life of poverty. And um, she's, a, she's a life, uh, someone who really gave her life to others in almost a saintly way, and I, I suspect she'll become a saint before too long. And she wrote a book, which I highly recommend, called The Long Loneliness, about her own early life. Uh, and it's a deeply moving book for anybody, whether you're religious or not religious, just to see someone who's really taken on the sins of the, uh, or the burden of being poor, embraced a life of poverty, uh, out of a sense of this is what I'm called to do. It's a, I teach it in my classes at Yale, and um, students of, of all varieties are very moved by her. So I've had the pleasure of interviewing you for years, and you don't seem to ever change when you're sitting in that chair, but if you read this book, you go yeah. back to the period where you say you were lonely in your own apartment, had no, uh, you know, didn't care about anything, had a hard time. What's the difference of that feeling you had then after your divorce and the feeling you have now every day when you get up? Yeah, uh, well, you know, then it's, you, I, as I say, I was just, I had, I had devoted my life so much to work. I had workday friends who I could go to lunch with and talk about politics. But I had no weekend friends. Like I, somehow that had drifted away. Life had become all work, and when the kids left to college and, and uh, elsewhere, um, I just saw suddenly all had nothing, uh, and so the, just these vast expanses of of loneliness uh, in the weekends. Which and I realized the void was also in myself that I hadn't really fed uh, my inner life. So I was writing a lot of articles, but I, I wasn't really living. Um, an internal life, a life of attachments or devotions. And so I think you become ashamed and humiliated, like I'm supposed to be a smart guy, I'm writing books about life and all that stuff, I'm not doing well. <laughs> and so I was humiliated. Um, and, you know, but that's, you know, life gives us valleys. That was a valley that I caused. Um, you know, my mom died two years ago, that's another valley. Life gives us valleys. Uh, and I was with a 94-year-old who said, you know, our life is defined by our moment of greatest adversity and how we react to it. And so the valley, you, you're either broken, in which case you turn bitter by life's tri trials, or you get broken open, which, in which case you get more vulnerable. And um, hopefully I've tried to get more vulnerable. So what about life today? I mean, when you get up every day, is there a different feeling? Yeah, now I have a, a very joyful life. I have, I have, partly that's luck. I fall into some warm communities. Uh, where they really demand that you show up in a loving way, and I love to. I love these people. Uh, partly, it's being blissfully happy uh, in my marriage, and then partly it's um, trying to work out these issues through the through the book. I mean, you, we really try to write our way to a better life, and I enjoyed writing this book. It was uh, stressful because it was tough to organize and all that, but it allowed me to be in touch with very smart people, who I quote a lot: uh, Rabbi Heschel, Rabbi Sachs. Some Jewish, some Christian, C.S. Lewis, um, a lot of scientists, Einstein. Um, and I just take the wisdom that I found and I try to pass it along. It's, this book is almost me, not, not me being a writer, but more like a teacher. These people have a curriculum of wisdom, and I've harvested it for five years and I hand it off to the reader. So a lot of it is not me, a lot of it is other people's wisdom. Another writer you mention is Matthew. <laughs> yes. From the Bible. Yeah. Why? Well, to me, the. Uh, well, all the books of the Bible, people say, oh, there are all these miracles in the Bible. To me, the miracle is the Bible. Like, that somebody in some group of people thousands of years ago could come up with Genesis or Exodus uh, or Matthew is a miracle. It's like parting the Red Sea is nothing compared to the depth and complexity of these books. And in Matthew, specifically, the Beatitudes are to me um, just so sublimely beautiful. 
uh, just the idea of the, the, and the revolutionary ideas expressed in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is, that to me is a, just a beautiful miracle that should, is, you know, that's a revolution. And uh, as someone in, I quote in the book says, the celestial grandeur shines through in those words. And Matthew has the best version of that. You came from Canada. You graduated from the University of Chicago in history. Yes. Or, the reason I mention it is you say at the time you were in college, you despised Edmund Burke. Yeah. But you no longer despise him. And who was he? And what, I mean, I see this all the time. People say, Edmund Burke is my guy. Yeah. Why? That's what is it? What is it yeah. about him, and what, and and what did he write that matters? So I was a college freshman, and the good thing about University of Chicago is they assign you books you don't want to read, and you, they make you take these courses. You you have no choice, uh, and so I was assigned a book called The Reflections on the Revolution in France. Edmund Burke was an Irish philosopher and member of Parliament uh, in the late 18th century, and he supported the American Revolution, but he violently opposed the French Revolution. And this was a book against the French Revolution and against the revolutionaries and the fervor that was happening across the channel. What was the difference? He thought the American Revolution, I'm simplifying a little, was a conservative revolution, that our revolutionaries were just defending our proper rights. The problem with the French Revolution, it was an attempt to wipe the slate clean of society and create a new society out of nothing. And the key phrase I take from Burke, or his key thesis, is epistemological modesty. Society is really complicated, so we should be careful in how we think we can change it. And you should do change, but you should do it incrementally, gradually, and constantly. And so he was very suspicious of big revolutionary movements to rewrite society. He put a lot of his faith in the acquired wisdom of the ages that is embodied in institutions and in customs uh, and in the traditions of the past. And so he said, when you wipe away those traditions, you're asking for trouble. And when I was an 18-year-old kid, I th- thought that was horrible. Like, I want to change. I wanted... But then I went off as a police reporter in Chicago, and um, I saw, like, the Cabrini Green and, and Robert Taylor Homes with these housing projects were well-intentioned people. I put up these big housing projects in hopes to improve the lives of the poor, and they made it worse. Because when they tore down the old neighborhoods, they tore away all the connections and the social capital. And these projects were, were awful places. Um, and, oh, that's what Edmund Burke warned us against, the unintended consequences of good inven- intentions. And now those projects have been torn down and are much, those places are much better. I, I know you've written some about Donald Trump, and I really don't want you to go over all the stuff that people say about him. I do want to ask you this, though. When he's gone whether at the end of uh, 2020 or another four years or whatever, what do you think, based on what you know now, will be the, the legacies? I'm not sure that's the word, but what will have changed in our system at that point? Yeah, well, I think the big thing, and I, I'm a cultural determinist, I think culture really shapes um, history. Some people think technology, but I think culture and values and ideas. And Donald Trump will have put a tear in a lot of our norms and that culture of how we're supposed to behave. What's propriety look like? What are the values we're supposed to Give me an behave? example. So it used to be you, would, uh, you wouldn't tweet off nasty stuff as President of the United States. Uh, you wouldn't um, pay off a, a, a stripper and be unabashed about it. Uh, and so, uh, but he does all this without shame. Hold on on the stripper thing just for a moment, because you go back in history... I don't, name your president. Yeah. Lyndon Johnson, 
John F. Kennedy, go back over the right. list of where they have been. We just didn't right. know about them. Right. But if we had known, there would have been a scandal because there were certain norms. So that was a norm where we just keep it all quiet. It's just between us boys. And that norm had to change. But there was a sense that if a president lied a lot, then there would be a price to pay. Is there any difference between what Donald Trump did and what Bill Clinton did? Oh, I think, um, um, you know, Clinton had his affairs, but Trump is is open and flagrant about it. There's not even paying homage to the norms. And, you know, believe me, I was upset with Trump, with Clinton at the time, but uh, I think this is a different order of magnitude. Okay, what else will have changed? Well, the, the crucial question to me is what happens after. Do, is this the new norm? I remember, like, it, it was clarified for me the first presidential, the first Republican debate in the primary season, where uh, he'd already attacked Carly Fiorina for her face. And then he turned to Rand Paul, a uh, senator from Kentucky, and he said, I'm not going to go after your looks, but I've got a lot to work with there. And I'd never seen anybody at a presidential debate talk that way. And suddenly, boom. And the problem is when you take away the norms of politeness and civility, then everything just becomes dog-eat-dog. Uh, and so I worry about the decay of civilization. Is a core belief of conservatism that the crust of civilization is thinner than you think, and that there's a chaos below. If you tear away that crust, you're likely to unleash things you don't like. Are there other things you can think about that will change? Well, I, I think there are other things that he's probably right about. I, I think, I mean, the, I, more than we talk about often, our attitude toward China has changed, and he's probably changed it in a correct way, or he's seen... Uh, the China, China has become a more threatening presence in the world, and he's recognized that, and he was probably early to see that. What about military intervention around the world? Yeah, well, he, well, he, I think he continues the with retrenchment that began in a different way under President Obama. And so whether we'll um, stay in this posture, I think, is an open question. The Vietnam syndrome, the famous Vietnam syndrome, happened in the 70s, but by 1980 we were electing Ronald Reagan, and America was much more active in the world again. And so America, I think, tends to be active in the world and tends to feel it has to be active in the world. And it's very possible the next president or will find himself or herself as president and America will have to act uh, and be active. For, we're talking now and there's a refugee crisis, asylum seeker crisis on our southern border. And it's because we've ignored and now defunding some of those countries like Honduras and El Salvador. Uh, and it, things turn bad when America is not active in the world, trying to maintain a, a basic decency and an order. Have you seen uh, the column written by Robert Samuelson? Uh, I'm not sure which book. book. Oh, I'm not. No. It's <laughs> kind of him. I'm a big admirer of Robert Samuelson. Well, That's he, nice. says, he says, uh, Dear David, he's a letter to David. Okay. And the headline gives it away. David Brooks, comma, let me respectfully suggest, colon, lighten up. Okay. He starts off by saying, we have met a few times over the years while covering the same events. I'm a big fan. You write beautifully and more often than not have insights about politics, lifestyles, and beliefs that others have missed. Then he goes into this. He says, as a rule, I rarely respond directly to other columnists. Many columnists do the same. It's a good rule because if abandoned, it would make commentary even more personal and shrill. But sometimes rules need to be broken. This, I think, is one of those times. So, David, let me respectfully suggest lighten up. To be sure, most of your insights are true, but they are also utopian. Let me just stop there. Hmm. What do you think? Um, I'm not sure where he's going with that. Um, if I, it's about cultural 
anxiety. I do think we're in a culturally perilous place, you know, 45,000 people killing themselves every year, 72,000 dying of opiate addiction. I do think that's a that's a peril. So I don't know if that's where he's going or... But let me just, because okay. we don't have much time. He, he said, David, here are a few comments on the lies yeah. that we've just talked about. And he says this, America, uh, ambition is America's blessing and curse. It is a blessing because it encourages people to try new things, to stretch their... You know, I can go on. Right. But what do you think? What's your yeah, name? so... Maybe I was exaggerating for effect. A lot of the things that I think um, I call lies are really uh, truths taken to an extreme. And so, of course, I believe in Alexander Hamilton. I believe in ambition, and I believe in social mobility. But I think we've taken that such to the extreme that we've distorted our culture. So if I sat down with Samuelson, we'd probably say, yeah. we. Okay, here's another. Happiness is not a practical goal of public policy, even if governments sometimes reduce or eliminate some conditions that make people unhappy or miserable. Hmm. He says happiness is not a... Happiness is not a practical goal of right. public policy. Right. I, I, do, I do agree with that, that the government can offer services, but uh, we offer each other care, and that's where happiness comes in. And he says that the meritocracy frequently criticized is not nearly so sinister as it's portrayed. Yeah. Well, I think there we might differ. I, I, I've um, come to think that, I mean, I, I live in the meritocracy. I felt its teeth, and I embody it, certainly. But I do think the lack of social trust, the sense of social division, comes in part from um, from a meritocracy that's uh, lost some of its values. So I, I don't think I'd, I I see where I see his point. Okay, we'll we'll wrap this up by saying finally he writes this Robert Samuelson of the Post. Finally, there's the matter of work. Everyone complains about it, but without it, most of us would die of boredom. Learning new stuff, the essence of journalism, is inherently rewarding. And David, you and I are paid to do it. The virtues outweigh the vices. His last sentence. So let's keep perspective. We don't live in an ideal world and never will, but things could be worse, maybe quite a bit worse. Let's try to avoid that. Right. Well, I agree with that. But, I, you know, I have a chapter in the book on vocation because I do think work is one of the pillars of life. But I, I think you should do it as a sense of, like, what am I contributing here? And I don't think you should do it just because... It makes you money, makes you famous. Uh, almost out of time, but when you sat down to write this book, who did you have in mind reading it? Myself. <laughs> you, you, you're really trying to work out your problems. But the, I mean, my books, you're, you're either successful or popular or not, but the popularity comes not because you're a genius. There are a lot of people a lot smarter, a lot of people a lot better writers. But I have kind of pro common problems. And I say that in the book that I'm a very average person with above average communication skills. And so when I'm going through a crisis like disconnection, a lot of other people are going through it. And so I, I'm very typical. <laughs> uh, and so if there's any popularity, it's because a lot of people recognize, oh, yeah, I'm going through something like that, too. And so it's my averageness that is the key, not my unoriginality. Un Our guest has been David Brooks. He is a New York Times columnist. And the name of his book, The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. Thank you very much for okay. joining us. Thank you. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.